Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, Considering the Women, from our 2018 programme. Celebrated poet, teacher and feminist Choman Hardy arrived in Britain in 1993 seeking asylum from Kurdistan. She attended Oxford, London and Kent universities and was a research fellow at Oxford before returning to her home city of Suleimani in 2014 to teach English and to found the region's groundbreaking Centre for Gender and Development Studies. Her two poetry volumes include Life for Us and Considering the Women. She has also written insightfully about the impact of genocide on women in Iraq. Hardy discusses poetry, geography and women in the Muslim world with Paula Green in a session supported by our Platinum Bold patron, Teresa Gatting. We hope you enjoy it. I thought it would be lovely to begin by infusing the year with a poem. So if you'd like to read a poem Thank you, to Paul. launch this session... And thank you all for coming on a Saturday afternoon. I'm sure there are more fun things to do. So I thought I'll start with this poem called Before You Leave, which is the first poem in the book. Um, I wrote this poem after reading a poem by Jacob Pauley, a British poet, uh, calling Moving House, where the person literally moves the house. Um, he deflates the staircase, double packs each room, taps the ground so that the foundations arrive like worms after rain and so on. Uh, bubble wraps the chimney, and I, it's a very playful poem, Jacob's poem, and, I, and it brought me to tears because right there I realized that's exactly what we do as immigrants. We think we leave our homes behind, but we actually take them with us. We take the food, we take the values, we take the rugs, we take the decorations. Unfortunately, we sometimes take the bad things too, such as honor killing. So this poem is um, instructions for uh, leaving your country before you leave. Wrap your language in plenty of silk, each word separated from the other so that they don't rub or get scratched. Don't forget the words you never use. As years go by and details fade, you may need them. Take a suitcase full of your thirsty mountains. They will thrive in that rain. Pack the voices of your neighborhood in a musical box firmly locked for the long journey. Take the debate of the male intellectuals, their passionate fights, books full of their arguments. Carry your mother's warmth in your skin, her smell in your clothes. Your father will always be with you. Every time you take a step, make a decision or refrain. The widow's cries, Miscarried children and the creeping cancer will remain in your dreams. You won't miss them. Drag your schools behind you as you go. The begging benches, the crying lessons. <laughs> Thank you. I just love that movement through packing things and what you carry with you. And in 2014, you did move back to your hometown with your family to teach at the American University of Iraq, where you became a chair in English. But I want to go back to, before you packed, before you packed the things that you took away with you, to your childhood and what fermented and laid itself down there in your blood and bones. Can you just paint a little portrait of you as the girl in that first home? Sure. I, 
I actually, when I was born, um, there have been many broken Kurdish revolutions, as you probably know. Another rev revolution had just broken down and defeated. So my family fled when I was one month old. They took me to Iran. I spent my first years until five uh, in a sort of neighborhood outside Tehran, the capital of Iran. And then I, I moved back um, when I was five, and, and um, I had heard so many stories about back home and how wonderful it was. And right there at the border, I realized much of what they had told me were lies. Because as immigrants, we always remember the best of our homelands. We don't remember the awful things. And I realized also right at the border, which was separated by a chain, that the landscape was very similar, the weather was very similar, the people, the culture, everything was very similar. So despite that, I returned home, and I became the sort of foreign girl in, in my own home country. Um, I spent nine years in my home city from the age of five to 14. And then, uh, prompted by another genocide, uh, I fled finally in 1988 and eventually landed in London. Um, I grew up in a very large family, so we're seven siblings. And one thing that I missed most when I was living in London was the eating time together. Mm. We eat uh, a lot in my culture. We love food, and uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, we, we eat on the floor, obviously. You, you have this sufra that you lay on the floor. And you will always have guests for lunch or dinner, unannounced. So every time mom cooks, has to cook for several other people just in case they turn up. So this sense of community and connectedness is something that I missed very much. Also, being the last child in a very large family, I was very spoiled. And I hadn't realized that. Like, I ended up in London in my um, late teens. And I was the sort of Muslim refugee girl in the school. And I wasn't liked very much. And that shocked me. <laughs> because in my view, I was adorable. <laughs> I really just thought, how could they not like me? You know, I'm, I'm very fun. I'm clever. I'm nice. I'm a very gentle person. How could anyone not like me? And it took me a long time to get over this feeling that no matter how nice you are, there will always be people who, who won't like you. So I guess I miss that. Um, sense of community connection, large family, uh, and also being the last child, I had very few responsibilities, whereas in London everything reversed. I became the interpreter to my parents who didn't speak English. I had to carry a lot of responsibilities. I had to learn English, I had to go to school, and I had to become a responsible person. And, and that was a big transition from being the very protected and sheltered little girl um, who didn't have to know about much I was really kept in the dark about many things mm. by my family. And then the realization came later about what had happened mm. in that time. Mm. So did London become a form of home for you? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, this is absolutely another lost homeland. And I, I miss London very much. Um, it was a place where I think most people, including you if you go, will feel at home. I think it's not. Anyone feels at home in London. It's everyone's home, all the different restaurants, all the different cultural centers, all the events, activities, the music, the liveliness of it, um, buzzing uh, always with people. Uh, yes, I, I developed a very strong connection. I think places actually are about people. So mm. wherever you end up where you can make friends and you build a community around yourself, it becomes a sort of home. But then I knew while I was in London that no matter how brilliant I was, um, there were many more people who were doing excellent job 
in what I wanted to do. And if I, if I was gone, I wouldn't be missed. Mm. It's such a large place, um, and there are so many good people doing a lot of good work in the, liturgy, in the literary scene in particular, poets and writers. So there was also this sense of wanting to go home, want, wanting to be in London and feeling a little bit of an outsider still, and having this strong connection to a place which wasn't a very developed place or a very beautiful place, but it was a place where I felt at home and it kept sort of pulling me back. Mm. You've got that poem, My Country, where you say you keep a bit of myself in my handbag. And I, I loved that, you know, you keep a bit of, of the country in your handbag every day. What did pull you back to be there as you are there now? So I, I spent a few years not being interested in Kurdish things at all. Um, I think it was a survival mode, really. Mm. I needed to focus on my studies. Um, every Kurdish event I went to turned into a political debate. Mm. There were also very vicious arguments going around. Um, lots of anger, lots of victimhood. And I felt I couldn't handle that at the time. I needed to go to university, I needed to adapt, and I needed to settle in. Um, I actually uh, married an Englishman at the time, and we spent eight years together, and I felt I will never leave. This is my country now, and this is where I'm going to stay. Now, when I started my PhD, I, I interviewed many Kurdish women from Iraq and Iran about their refugee journey and their well-being in the UK as refugees and asylum seekers. And I became interested again in the Kurdish stories from a gendered perspective, from mm -hmm. a woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I had the idea of doing my postdoc research about the genocide survivors mm -hmm. because around at the time, uh, mid-2000s, Kurdish satellite channels started to appear. And um, I started sometimes listening and watching to programs. And there were many documentaries about these women and men survivors of the genocide campaign. And they left me thirsty because I felt that um, we had one, one representation of Anfal, and I, I had many questions about what the women experienced during the campaign, and my questions weren't answered. So I was thinking about doing that, and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from the Leverhulme Trust, and I started going home, initially thinking that I know this story, this is my you know, people's story, and I've grown up knowing about it. In fact, that's the reason why I left in 1988. It was the genocide campaign and the mass gassing of the civilians in the villages, and I thought I knew this story and it wouldn't affect me, so I started going home, doing long field trips, three months, four months at a time, going to many remote villages and distant towns, interviewing many survivors, majority of them women, and this is a time when I started thinking, I need to come home. Mm -hmm. So I started this um, research in 2005, and the book was produced in 2011. So I spent about five years working on this academic book. And while I was doing that, I met many um, um, women activists who were defending um, women's rights. I met many survivors and victims of the genocide campaign. I also did a series of lectures and workshops for young people at the time. And I just thought, my goodness, just within the space of three hours in a workshop about gender, you would have young people who would be receptive to reconsidering some of their views. And I just thought, well, this is excellent. You know, this is where I need to be, and education is the thing that I need to do. So I had been thinking about that since 2010, and just waiting for the right time and the right opportunity mm. to be able to do that. Yeah. And you 
you went you, you ended up writing the book, but then you've also done it with poetry, and so in considering the women, you've got the sequence of poems where you've talked to the survivors, but it becomes poetry. And for me, it's kind of like the red hot core of this book. It's in the middle, so it's like the heart, the pulsing heart of it, with other things on other side on either side. And what, what it did to me was it took me behind the headline, behind the analysis on the New Yorker or the Washington Post or the Guardian or wherever, and it took me behind the statistics to the woman, the woman speaking. And I wondered what, what mattered to you when you were writing these poems and when you were with them. Yeah. I, it took me a long time to even do the academic book because I, I went through a long period of depression and being ill constantly, and um, I hadn't realized how much those stories would affect me. As I said, I, I really just thought I knew the story, but I think you don't know a story until you know the nuances and the details and the, you know the people who are living through those stories. They're no longer abstract, they're real. And I became very ill because I... I I had always been fighting against my father's pessimism, siding with my mother's optimism about the world, that people are generally good and rational and the evil will not succeed, and if they do, there will be justice, and uh, living by that and expecting uh, continui continuity in life um, where you, know, you will wake up every day doing the same things you expect to do. And this research sort of made me realize that many of these things are not true. There are many instances in history where um, domesticity, normalcy, normalcy um, everything, routine is disrupted, where evil people will have power, where a lot of people will be victimized. And not only that, these people who survive will never have justice. Because I mean justice, I mean, what, what does that mean anyway? Um, you could have... Uh, a trial, you could put some people on trial, and Ali Hassan al-Majid, known as Chemical Ali to the Kurds, because he gassed many, he was hanged for the crime of the Anfal genocide, but uh, these women were left without compensation, without redress. Their stories quickly became meaningless in the community, because the, the community was saturated in these stories of mm -hmm. grief mm -hmm. and um, wanted to move away from it, because you really don't know how to cope with it. And these stories were reproduced by the media, reproduced in non-imaginative artistic representations, in plays, in paintings, in, in everyday rhetoric, and so on. Um, and the community wanted to shut those voices away and move on. And these women who had been victimized by a sort of nationalist um, state became victimized once again in their own community as you know, survivors of horrific things that the community didn't want to hear about anymore. And um, it was very sad because also I, I realized many of these women had been interviewed so many times and they continued to tell their story in the hope of countering this narrative about them as hopeless victims in black as women who are always crying for their dead children, as women who are alone in graveyards full of men and boys. And they wanted to say that there was a lot more to their story than that, mm. that there was a life before Anfal, there is a life after that, and there are many more grievances. So I tried to, in a way, I tried to capture the complexity of this story and mm. to counter this Kurdish 
um, discourse about the genocide campaign, which is very black and white. It says that Arabs, nationalist Arabs victimized Kurdish nation. That's not true. There were many Kurds who collaborated in the campaign, and there were also some Arabs who helped out the victimized civilians. Not many, but there were some. And it also talks about the breakdown of the Kurdish revolution, the gassing uh, of the villages, and the destruction of the farming community. But it doesn't talk about the, the women and their children and the generations that come after that. So I, I tried to tell the people I interviewed that. I said, I cannot promise anything, but at least I could promise that I will tell your story and I'll be loyal to your story. I will not edit it like many others have had. And that's what I tried to do. But I, I think writing the poetry sequence was more difficult than that. Yeah, but I, I think you should read a couple of the poems in a minute. But I was, I, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that your poetry makes it heartbreaking clear the way in which these women had so much stripped back from them, which makes it dehumanizing. But on the other hand, your poetry also shows us their humanity because you give them voice. So maybe you could read us a couple of poems from that sequence. Sure. I, I thought I would read um, one poem called The Gas Attack. Mm. And um, the village population had been redlined for security reasons for a long time because um, the Kurdish revolution or the liberation movement functioned from these villages on the borders of Iraq with Iran and Turkey. If you can imagine Iraq, this is Iran and Turkey at the top. So these a strip of land where the village, the mountain villages were there. And they had been bombarded on regular basis for a long time, um, but they had not expected that they would be gassed. And this is something that uh, when the first gas attack was used, um, they were not prepared. This is the story of Badriya Said Hassan and Aisha Maghdib Muhammad, gas attack. Bombs could fall anywhere, any time of the day. They were a nuisance we got used to. In our dugout shelters, we felt safe until that haunting winter twilight when the muffled explosions deceived us. We came out thinking we'd survived the bombs, but a chalky yellow powder settled on our skin. Smelling of sweet, sweet apples at first, they seemed safe to breathe in. People were going crazy, laughing, buckling at the knees, twisting, running to the water source, blinded, bumping into trees. Villagers from the region came to our aid. They, they said, my son looked strange now, as if his eye color had split out, spelt out. His face was blistered, blackened. He groaned like a calf faced with a knife. I was still blind when he died could not see him, did not say goodbye. And the second poem I want to read is um, something that the survivors kept talking about is the need for closure. They all said that if, you, if, you, if your loved one dies, you bury them and you know it's, it's over and you can visit that grave or the place where you left them finally. But if you don't have a grave, if your relatives 
God forbid, end up in mass graves and you don't know where they are, you still have hope. You think that maybe they survived, somebody helped them, maybe they're suffering from amnesia, maybe a child doesn't remember who they are, but they will come back to you. And this hope is very irrational, but it's there unless you have uh, uh, closure. So this poem is about two women, because some of them, only very few of the mass graves were uncovered. As you can imagine, this is a very expensive thing to do, DNA testing and so on. Very few gas mass graves were uncovered, and this poem is about two women arguing over the remains of a 14-year-old boy. Dispute over a mass grave. The one you have finished examining is my son. That is the milky-colored Kurdish suit his father tailored for him, the blue shirt his uncle gave to him. Your findings prove that it is him. He was a tall 14-year-old, was left-handed, had broken a rib. I know she too has been looking for her son, but you have to tell her that this is not him. Yes, the two of them were playmates and fought the year before, but it was my son who broke a rib. Hers only feigned to escape trouble. That one is mine. Please give him back to me. I will bury him on the verge of my garden. The mulberry tree will offer him its shadow. The flowers will earnestly guard his grave. The hens will peck on his gravestone and the beehive will hum above his head. Mm. Thank you. I was wondering how things have changed for the Kurdish women before Hussein's genocide choices. There were choices made there to now, to how things are now. Politically or in, so gen in terms of that, gender? For that ordinary woman speaking. Yeah, um, I mean, politically, obviously much has happened. Um, after the first Gulf War, you know, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and there was the uprising, um, then because the, the government invaded again and the people were, the Kurdish region were scared of more gassing, mm. they fled to Iran and Turkey. And mm. as a result of that, there was the safe haven was set up in 1992, where Iraqi planes couldn't fly to Kurdistan. And that led to, uh, gradually the Iraqi government withdrew withheld salaries from civil servants, withdrew all services, and said, okay, there, you want it, you have it, but I'm not going to give you any support. So there was the sanctions, international sanctions on Iraq, mm. and there was the, also, on top of that, Iraqi sanctions on Kurdistan. And um, in that vacuum, the Kurdistan regional government was established, uh, the parliament, and um, obviously, when the Kurdistan regional government was established, also civil society organizations started appearing. Uh, and especially uh, women's NGOs. Many uh, women during the liberation movement had suspended fighting for women's rights because they believe that uh, national liberation is more important and we have to unite and support the men while we fight the dictatorship. And we will obviously have equality later. And I think that's a big mistake many women have made in history. Unless you integrate women's rights into a movement, you really can't have equality afterwards. These revolutionaries then came to power, formed the Kurdistan regional government, and uh, uh, honor killing went up 
because of the chaos, because of many armed men, um, gender inequality took on a different meaning. And these civil society organizations started fighting that. Of course, in the last 20-something years, um, in fact, 30 years now, no, uh, since 92, how many years? 26 years now. Um, a lot has, be, has been achieved in terms of um, many reforms to the law as a result of uh, women fighting and pressurizing the government to make reforms. So the honor killing law, which is still functioning in Iraq, is no longer in the Kurdistan region valid. Mm -hmm. So if a man kills a woman, it's a crime, just as mm -hmm. he would kill a man. Of course, men find ways to get mm -hmm. around this. But uh, for example, um, um, FGM, female genital mutilation, is now unlawful. Mm. And many other things. Polygamy was not forbidden, unfortunately, but um, they've put more and more restrictions, so it b makes it more and more difficult for a man to get a second wife, and so on. And uh, I mean, just the environment has changed a lot. The opportunities that nowadays women have compared to the opportunities that I had in my 20s mm. uh, is a huge change. It's still obviously not perfect. Mm. It's a process, but things have changed. Of course, we also had the referendum for independence in September, and that was met with uh, retaliation by the Iraqi government. The airports were closed down, and disputed territories were attacked again, and so on. Um, it is a continuous, um, unstable place, the Middle East. You know, One day, things are going well. The next day, it might change. But there is resistance, and that's what matters. Mm. There are plenty of good people who are trying to make good change happen, so things you, are better. You, for example, oh, we, we just went to um, this wonderful session on, on the suffragettes, and the question was, are we there yet? And the four women said, no, we're not here yet, having looked at objects in the Auckland Museum. But you've started a gender studies um, program at the university where you teach. Um, I was just wondering, is it risky? What kind of ideas are you really keen to be sparking these students with, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think, yeah, that's one of the changes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. um, so we have the first gender studies minor in Iraq, mm -hmm. in the American University, and I'm very proud. I have been working on this for a long time. Um, that was one of the things I wanted to do, to go home and make that possible. Because I personally believe in education. I think you can, you know, y you can really, I mean, not always. You have, um, unfortunately, Jihadi John, who's part of ISIS, um, one of the men who beheads other people, was, was educated in the UK. He may have experienced racism. I don't know what the background story is, but education is not magic, what I'm trying to say is. But I think it makes a hell of a difference um, mm. to give people the opportunity to see things differently, to re-examine many of their long-held views just because they inherited traditionally or from religion or from culture. They inherited many values they never mm. question. Mm. And to get an education where you learn to question these things. Um, Iraqi and Kurdish education system is not very strong on that. In fact, most of the students, public universities and public schools are based on memorizing texts and repeating them to pass exams. So what we do in the American University, we try to do a lot of critical thinking, soft skills, you know, analysis, critical thinking, argumentation, evidence. And um, students aged 20, 21, 22 come to our gender studies classes believing that the differences between men and women are biologically determined. 
Women are just hopelessly emotional, they can't help it. And men are just rational and, and aggressive, they can't help it. They might rape a woman because that's how they've been wired, you know. Uh, women can multitask, that's why they can look after children and attend to guests and go to work and, and wash the dishes at the same time. Men can't multitask, it's just their nature. <laughs> so um, it's very convenient <laughs> thinking, but it's the widespread thinking, you know. And um, to get people to see that this is all socially constructed, that yes, there are differences between men and women, large part of that is due to socialization. And I mean, we're color coded from the day we are born. Uh, mm. We are told. The gear, uh, you know, the stories we hear from childhood about girl heroes and boy heroes are very different. The media images of men and women are very different. Religion tells us a different story about men and women, and so on and so forth. So to get people to see that, many of the differences between men and women are actually created by society. It makes, it makes, it's, it's so satisfying to see students who actually engage in the argument and are persuaded by it. Not students who say they are persuaded mm. to get mm. the good grades, but students who actually believe in it and, and identify as feminist, men or women. Uh, it's such a satisfying feeling because you feel these, it's, it's after all a sort of private elite university and these will be probably some of the administrators of the future and decision makers and businessmen and women. So it feels like you are making a change, but I'm also very aware that this is a small university and the public universities are very different. So I have various projects in the gender center to make gender studies possible in other universities wonder, through translation, yeah. uh, through training professors mm -hmm. and so on. But um, I mean, is there's a lot likely? of potentials. Do you think that will happen? Well, we, we have a funding application with the EU, <laughs> so <laughs> I hope it will happen. I mean, the project is to, one of the difficulties our colleagues face in the public universities is that they don't have texts in Arabic and Kurdish, or they have very little. In Kurdish, there's hardly anything. In Arabic, there's a bit. Um, and to, to systematically translate texts for a gender and media course, for gender and the law, for gender and psychology, gender and pedagogy, systematically translate all the texts you need to study in one course and give the package to the professor and train them on the material. That is much more likely than just, the Kurdish government has announced recently, the Ministry of Higher Education, they want gender studies in every, every university. That's fantastic. Mm. But how are you going to make this happen? Where are the texts going to come from? Mm. Uh, so we are trying to help with that process as well because it's very important to not stick with this small group and just sort of spread out a little. I'm, hope, I'm very hopeful about that project because if we translate the material into Arabic and Kurdish, in fact, many countries in the Middle East and North Africa speak Arabic, so in fact, it will be accessible to many Middle Eastern and North African universities. So the potential there is major. So is, is, um, are there many Kurdish women writing poetry? There are, yes. Yeah. Yes, mostly, um, very few had been unfortunately translated. Mm. I translate, I helped translate one of the Kurdish poets called Kajal Ahmed with a British poet called Mimi Khalwati. It was a small pamphlet which was published in 2008. But um, I mean, Kurdish diaspora is very young. Um, so translation from English, Kurdish to other languages mm. is very new. Mm. But it's, it's starting to appear. Mm. I've been I mean, I've had your poetry with me for a little while now, and I've been thinking about it a lot and the effect it has upon me, which is quite deep and profound. And I was thinking about our poet laureate, Selena Tusi Marsh, a Pacific Samoan woman, 
whose latest book, Tightrope, faces up to that tricky, thorny question of what good is poetry? Mm. What good is poetry in this brutalized, hungry, greedy world? So she's written a number of poets, often kind of responding to Alice Walker, who says, yes, it does make a difference. Um, and I was thinking, this is what's happening with your poetry for me. It's, um, it's kind of linking ears across the world, um, this ear in the ear. And um, you've got a line in that poem again, my country, I sing my country for the silence that surrounds it. And I'm mm. thinking, you're singing it, and you're singing it across the global wire, and I'm getting something. I'm not sure what I'm getting, but I'm getting something, and I'm feeling it. And I'm thinking, it's like my heart, mind, and body has been jump-started in some kind of way, and heart-boosted. So you documented in a book, and then you moved to poetry. What changes in that move to poetry? Mm. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. And that's what I'm hoping to achieve, to create that connection. Um, there were many things I wanted to respond to. And one of them was um, my father was a poet. And he is still, even though he left poetry for politics, because he felt exactly that. He felt mm. poetry can't do anything in this mm. brutal world. And you need to be hands-on engaged. You need to enter the world of politics and make a difference. Um, the funny thing is, he's, he wasn't a very good, successful politician. He was a very fantastic poet. And he's still remembered for that one book of poetry that he wrote. And nobody really, they mentioned his politics in passing. So uh, actually, his poetry made a much bigger impact than all the years of struggle and going to prison and going to exile and founding parties and defending blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't like that, but that was the truth. And I think um, I'm very much interested in the intersection of poetry with social justice. Mm. Um, to me, I write poetry out of need. Mm. I mean, I love poetry that's written um, about nature and stones and trees, when it's written well. I mean, one of my favorite poets is Alice Oswald. I don't mm. know if you know her, British poet. She's written a lot, she's a gardener, and she's written a lot about trees and rivers and so on. She's fantastic. But that's not what I write. That's not what I'm good at, and that's not what enthuses me to write. I write because I think I need to. Mm. Um, I was in a conference about uh, genocide and the arts in America once, and uh, there were many groups of people who had survived uh, genocide there. And one Rwandan woman said something that absolutely brought me to tears. She said, I'm not scared of dying, but I am scared of not telling the truth. Mm. The brain is with us. Yeah, yeah. So it's important to tell the truth, and that's why I write. I write to tell the truth. Um, the process of turning stories of real people into poetry, it took me seven years, because I think the first versions I wrote were very emotional and angry, as you would be when you mm. find out about so much horror in the world right next to you. Um, and they didn't work as poems. They weren't good. you know. And I, I had to really edit them, edit them, edit them, go back to them, sometimes leave them for a long, long time get back to them with fresh eyes and ears and 
read them aloud to myself, and then finally decided to let them go and send them to my publisher the day before I returned home. I thought, okay, I think this is ready. And I don't know if you like this, but here, I've done this. Um, so in the collection, as you said, it's in the heart of the book. Mm -hmm. It's in the center. It's 13 poems. Mm -hmm. It starts with the voice of the researcher who um, naively goes into the field thinking she knows it all. And 11 survivors come and tell their story to the researcher. You, you, I read two of them, the gas survivor and um, dispute over the mass grave. And the last poem, again, is the voice of the researcher after becoming familiar with all the catastrophes and how that has been devastating. Mm. I like the title of that poem. Re is it Researcher's Blues? Blues, yeah, yeah. yes, indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. So um, I think I felt that those stories in themselves have a lot of emotion and power. Mm -hmm. And I needed to let them speak for themselves. And I shouldn't add any emotion of my own to it, my own reaction of anger or sadness or desperation. I just thought that will be over, overbearing. It, it will just ruin the poem. So I had to really hold back my own emotions. And I really had to tell the story from that person's perspective and try to be as true as possible. Of course, poetry is not factual. I don't mean to get the factual details right, but I wanted to get the truth of it right, the meaning of it for that particular survivor, the emotion of it. And uh, I think we, you know, people, <coughs> people often wonder that this distinction between knowledge and um, can we write well about something by just knowing it? Yeah, we, we can understand something without experiencing it, but I think for poetry, we really need to also experience those emotions mm. in order to genuinely be able to create that empathy, reconnect the survivor. The survivors always say that language fails them. They try to tell their story, and then they break down and they cry, and they say, you will never understand. I can never tell you what happened. Language is not enough to tell you what happened there to me. I can't <coughs> tell you. How could you possibly imagine? So trying to use language with all its limitations to get that truth out there. And, you know, it's, it's a process. Mm. And um, when I read your father poem, um, Balka, mm. I actually wrote down, you're, unaf you're unafraid to speak your own truth. And, and that, in fact, I loved tracking the mother, and I'm going to have a coughing fit in a minute. <coughs> so I'm going to get you to read a poem. <coughs> Why don't I just read can Bauke? You, can, you, can you read that? I'll yeah. read Bauke. I love this poem. Bauke is actually, it means father. And me and father had a good but complicated relationship, as most daughters with their fathers. Um, as I said, I always disliked the way my father was a pessimist. You know, he would always... I remember in 1988 when these people were arrested and he said they will all be killed and I didn't want to believe him. I believe that the government will probably detain them for a while and <coughs> deport them somewhere and resettle <coughs> them somewhere else. And uh, it took a long time to realize that he was right about many things. The sky is also having a fit. <laughs> Shall we wait for this to pass, do you think? We can all think of Honey Tufare's poem, Rain. 
This is the poem. I can hear you making yeah. small holes in the silence rain. Okay. Balka. I watched you swing your feet in parties, your jaw locked, your bright eyes staring forward. I heard you curse, talk to yourself, outraged by the smallest things. I saw you laugh from your heart, making right jokes, surprising everyone. I saw you cry. They deemed you irrational for demanding the four corners of your torn homeland. But even those who despised you, those who saw you as a threat, respected you. Your hands remained clean, your name spotless. All my life, I was embarrassed by your honesty, your lack of tolerance for nonsense, how harsh you were with people, yet how much they loved you. I memorized your poems before I could read, before I knew how good they were, realized that everyone recited, sang them. All my life, doors opened to me because I was yours, and how you laughed when I told you, I will make you famous one day. How depressed you were, how angry, you, little man with small hands and feet and huge eyes. I watched you in shame when you dwelled on being stateless, how your dark vision and fits of rage angered me. Bauka, you were a mountain, its size becoming apparent at a distance, and I was too close. How sad I am that you cannot see me in this language, could not understand the music of my words. And after all those years, how similar I have become to you, Bauka. How I cry and curse and shout about homeland. How harsh I am sometimes, just like you, Bauka. <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about the rain. <laughs> I just, I love, you know, poetry does many things, but one, one gold nugget of a thing that it does is it, it fills up with movement and you absorb, you breathe in the movement of the poem and that poem has so much movement in it. And another, can you hear me? Okay. It feels like we're talking in a kind of um, swimming chamber. Yeah. <laughs> Like, we can't see, we're in the ocean, we can't see and hear. <laughs> um, but another gold nugget for me is reading the mother poems. And I'm going to get you to read one, maybe the, my mother in the kitchen. But there are so many, and, and, and you take me to something like my mother's hands, and they smell of onions and mints and garlic and oranges. And it, it's just so evocative and so layered, so yeah, let's hear another poem. Do you actually hear at the back? You do, yes? They okay, sorry, because I, I can hardly hear myself. I'm just <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a kind of underwater chamber, so... We'll I don't know if it undermines us or goes with the atmosphere, but... <laughs> 
So my mother's kitchen. Now, my parents, after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, decided to move back home uh, because my father kept saying he wants to go and die there, and that's what he did, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. And my mother, who had spent all her life being a refugee here and there and moving house and, and making things, she kept saying, um, oh, I'm going to take this, I'm going to live with you, and, and so on and so forth. And I had never realized what a mess her kitchen was until I met my ex-mother-in-law, an English lady from South Devon who had inherited glassware from her grandparents, crystal glasses and beautiful you know, things. And then I realized, my God, my mom's kitchen is a terrible mess. Uh, and I realized also it's an immigrant's kitchen. I mean, you can't really be attached to objects because at any moment you might have to leave them. So this poem tries to capture that sense of return, but also inheritance and continuity. My mother's kitchen. I will inherit my mother's kitchen. Her glasses, some tall and lean, others short and fat. Her plates an ugly collection from various sets. Cups bought in a rush on different occasions. Rusty pots she can't bear throwing away. Don't buy anything just yet, she says. Soon all of this will be yours. <laughs> My mother's planning another escape. For the first time, home is her destination. The rebuilt house which she will furnish. At 69, she started about, she's excited about starting from scratch. It's her ninth time. She never talks about her lost furniture when she kept moving, leaving her homes behind. She never feels regret for things, only for her vine in the front garden, which spread over the trellis on the porch. She used to sing for the grapes to ripen, sew cotton bags to protect them from the bees. But I know I will never inherit my mother's trees. Mm. Now, after she moved back, she said, I now have honeymoon furniture, and I think you should write about that too. <laughs> but that's not much fun to write about honeymoon furniture. I was just wondering, just for a little taste, whether you could share a bit of Kurdish one of your Kurdish poems, or...? Yeah, um, just to give you a taste of um, the way it sounds, yeah. and I had made a note of which one I'm going to read. Um, this poem is old, actually. I, I wrote it when I was in my early 20s. I was in love, uh, and I was up counting the lights in the opposite buildings at 2 in the morning, and I was wondering how many lights were on because people were making love not realizing that this is London we're talking about. People don't make love. And uh, so, and I was also wondering how many lights will be on in God's house and whether he would be up recording sins or he would be up because he's in love. La balahani malihua chan hazartan dagir saun. Taregaban, letianusa goda cani gunahta, narimanish to marpcre. Chandalambohua a sute, beho edgar batanha. Piristi bapshu yaki durudrejo, yaka kabutuane pishti pebabaste.
بلی خواهد عاشق بوده. Natalie is stanza of it there. Thank you. When you when you don't understand the language, it's like when you listen to opera. You hear the musical currents of it, and um, it seems very different. You know, the musicality of that was intense for me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There is a poem. Um, I'm, I'm very mindful I want to give you a chance to ask questions. So um, I want you to all race out and buy the book and turn to the last poem, A Day for Love, because I've met a few friends for lunch in cafes in the last six weeks, and I give them this poem to read, because it's like a talisman, and it draws upon life and catastrophe and it tenders both love and hope. Um, but you're going to read us a brand new poem called For the Sake of Argument. And I thought just before you do that, I was wondering what hope do you feel for yourself and what hope do you feel for your home? I, I have gone back to being an optimist like my mother, so I think <laughs> I do have a lot of hope. Uh, and if I don't, then I can't continue, really. I mean, I, I, there are days when I feel desperate. Most of the time, though, I feel, when I read a student feedback after the, the grades have been given, and even when the grade is low, and it, and it says, this was tough, but I learned a lot. That makes my day, you know. In fact, um, just about a week ago, I was stressing to finish my grading, submit my grades, and come to New Zealand. And I was like, oh. I can't do this, and this is becoming too much. Uh, I have so many other deadlines on, and so on. And one of my students just wrote me an email at 1.30 in the morning, and that made my night. And I could finish my grading and do it in time before coming here. But there are also days, um, I think the Kurdish question is a complicated one. I don't think there's any, going to be any resolution anytime soon. Mm -hmm. As you can see, the situation in Turkey, um, the situation in Syria, the situation in Iraq, uh, the elections were just held, you know, talks of them being rigged and so on. Um, but there will be change. There are plenty of good people who are trying to make change. And for women, I think we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and I think it's very important for the diaspora to move back. A lot of good ideas come from the people who've been educated elsewhere, have seen other cultures, and uh, they bring back ideas and they work you know, on achieving these dreams. I think there is hope. But um, the poem I'm going to read is about one of those nights where I, I uh, couldn't sleep and I was scared. Every now and then, you know, I get attacked on social media, or many of the women activists do. And uh, I remember one of my colleagues told me, a male student who hadn't even gone to my class said, um, you know, I, I teach a lot about uh, Freud, for example, penis envy and, um, Julia Kristeva, Luce Erigari, these women, you know, feminist criticism and so on. And uh, the, the, the male student had told my colleague, Dr. Choman hates my penis, because <laughs> we're all men hating feminists, right? And she told him, trust me, my dear, she doesn't even think about your penis. <laughs> <laughs> but this idea of hating penises and penis envy and, you know, this, this things that I teach which are really big taboos sometimes. And I sometimes wonder when will it be 
a student will go and tell a parent, and a parent will talk to another parent, and they will come back to the university and complain about the things I teach. So far, nothing has happened, but um, this poem, unfortunately, addresses that fear, because I think we know that, all of us, that women had been killed for much less at many instances in the world. For the sake of argument, one day I will be killed by a crowd of angry men who will blame me for their misery, objection, their damaged masculinity. At a checkpoint, oblivious to a recent terrorist attack and the extra security, I will be, I will be recognized by a man a man whose brother or sister studies where I teach, a student who never went to my classes will tell others that I encourage female obstinacy, hate penises, defend sodomists, criticize the holy book. I will be asked to step out of the car, produce my ID, but unlike other times, I will not be sent to the woman for a thorough body search. This time, after brief questioning, men with rough hands will squeeze my ideas out of me. I will be undressed, spat on, slapped, stoned, kicked, until someone will take pity and jump on my head with his feet. Or it will happen in a bazaar when I shout at a man who squeezes a girl as he passes by, and someone who has seen me on TV and remembers some of what I said will defend the perpetrator. The woman will watch me in horror for speaking up. The woman will quickly walk away. At first, Men will come to listen for the fun of it. Then they will take part in the argument because their wives, sisters, daughters are asking for too much freedom lately because they are debased by the enemy. After the first slap, it will get easier. They will close in on me till I am left on the pavement, knifed, kicked, squeezed to death. Or maybe it will happen in some other way with fire or water or more painful means. But what I rue the most is that my murder will go in vain because martyrs make a difference no more. I will be another woman killed senselessly, another victim whom some people will feel sorry for, for a few days, then forgotten. Back to the business of everyday life. The streets with their normalcy. The checkpoints with their necessity. Mm. Thank you. It's, it goes back to that idea of your own truth again, and you show us both, you know, you show us the woman speaking out and the daring and the story. So, yeah, it's incredible movement. We've got time for a couple of questions, if anybody would like to ask a question. Any questions? <coughs> We do have, um, have you got a question? No. We, we do have another poem though. Um, oh, have you got a question? Yes. Oh, it's a mic, I think. Here's a microphone here. Sorry. Is it on? Um, I wanted to ask about um, 
Muslim woman, Muslim woman, sorry. I want to ask about Muslim woman and wearing um, the... Uh, hijab. Hijab, yeah. And what, what your thoughts are about that and what happens in your country at the moment. So, you know, in, in Iraq, we don't have a law. Uh, in Kurdistan, if you come, you probably will think it's quite liberal on the face of it from what people wear. Um, I mean, I have mixed feelings about the hijab, obviously, um, but we have to understand that um, people wear hijab for different reasons. I'm absolutely against the hijab when it's forced on people, when it's the government's choice or their family's choice and they're pressurized to wear it. But I'm, less, I'm more reluctant to refuse it so, bad, so straight out when it's a woman's choice. And um, this has been documented. A lot of research has been done about why women wear the hijab. And some people say, um, for example, the Iranian revolution. I mean, Iran before 1979 was a very sort of westernized, open, modern country. And then um, fighting against American imperialism, um, many women chose to wear the hijab to defy imperialism and colonialism. You know, um, Women choose, to hijab, choose the hijab in order to fight assimilation. Um, in, in countries where they are refugees and, and, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Women choose to wear the hijab because they refuse to be sexually objectified. Women choose to wear the hijab for different reasons. And some of them wear it because of faith, because of not questioning what uh, religion says. And I, I think it's very easy to say that um, women have been brainwashed. And I, I would, uh, my argument against the sexual objectification is that it's not my responsibility to cover myself so that you don't get excited. I'm responsible for my own actions, and you're responsible for yours. I, don't, I shouldn't be having to cover up so that you don't commit a crime. But um, I also understand that people do it out of choice, and we have to reflect, uh, respect those choices mm -hmm. if it is genuinely a choice, if it is not forced on them. But we don't have that law. Women, there are women who wear the hijab by choice or, or forced by families. <coughs> We've just got, we're almost out of time. We've got about 70 seconds, but we could have maybe a quick question. There, there was this lady. Oh, oh sorry, yeah. I was lucky enough in 2012 to go on holiday to Iraq, and we went all around the place, including to Kurdistan. What, um, and obviously there's been the Daesh um, ISIS invasion since then, so everything's probably changed. But what struck me when we crossed the frontier into, into Iraqi Kurdistan and had our passports stamped and so on, was um, that everything in Erbil anyway was in place. The paving stones were all in place, the streets were clean, there was massive construction going on. But on the, on the woman side, um, women were not wearing a baya. They might have a hijab, but they were wearing jeans. Um, it was striking, it was so striking after two weeks in, in Iraqi Iraq. Mm. Um, and I wondered if it's still like that. It was very modern, but in Iraq was modern too, but Kurdistan was even more modern. Yeah, that's still the same. I mean. We don't notice this ourselves so much, but people say that uh, when they come from the Arab Iraq to Kurdish Iraq, they notice a difference. Um, I haven't spent enough time in the South to realize that, but I, I think that's true. 
And there's a lot more space for um, freedom, I think, and choice. We've act we're actually out of time. So if you've got questions, um, showmen will be coming to the signing table. Um, I just want to thank you for your sharing your own truth with such generosity and warmth and empathy, sharing poetry and conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. You can get to hear Choman again tomorrow in a free discussion about the art of poetry with James Brown, Irene Beautre, and Therese Faboda in the upper NZI room on Sunday. That's 10 a.m. tomorrow. I'll be there. And you can also follow us across there. I just have to read this off here because it's complicated. But um, the signing table is inside the AOTS Centre through the box office across the foyer to the right at the author signing table. You know so that, right? you got that. Over there, <laughs> turn right. So please thank me. Um, please join me in thanking Joanne for this wonderful session. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.